Hi, and welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month, I'm talking to Jacob Turner about the OpenAI GTP2 algorithm, robot ethics in law and protected industries, sector-by-sector rules for AI versus overarching principles, uh, professionalizing standards and licensing for data scientists, creating institutions capable of democratic principle creation, and doing regulation well to encourage innovation and growth. Find all our other podcasts and connect with us at machine-ethics.net. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. And we're even on Instagram at instagram.com forward slash machine ethics podcast. Thank you and enjoy. Um, hi, Jacob. Welcome to the podcast. If you could just give yourself a little intro and let people know who you are and what you do, that'd be great. Well, thanks very much for having me, Ben. My name's Jacob Turner. I am a lawyer based in London and also the author of a new book called Robot Rules, Regulating Artificial Intelligence. The first question we always have on the podcast is, what is AI or what is AI to you, I guess? The psychologist Ernest Boring once said that intelligence is what is measured by intelligence tests. And I think there's quite a lot of insight in that comment. The key point being that there isn't a single definition of intelligence which is apt for all purposes, or at Mm. least if there is one, then humanity hasn't come up with it yet. So what I seek to do with my definition of artificial intelligence is to have one which is specifically fit for my purpose. My purpose is to look at whether AI needs any new regulations from a legal or ethical standpoint. And my definition is tailored only to that purpose. It's not aimed at being a general, all-encompassing definition. The definition is as follows. Artificial intelligence is technology which is able to take decisions Mm -hmm. on the basis of principles rather than rules. Another way of putting it is to say that technology which is artificially intelligent has the quality of autonomy. That is to say that it it can take decisions, it can arrive at outcomes which were not pre-programmed into it, or it can develop methodologies which similarly were not predetermined by any human programmer. That for me is the core of artificial intelligence and what makes it unique compared to any previous technologies. So to be clear, in my definition of artificial intelligence, I don't include technologies such as symbolic AI, good old-fashioned AI, or expert systems, which are essentially just logic trees that have, with every given input, a certain given output. Those would not be covered. Right. So you're you're talking more about the kind of uh, more, more more machine learning type algorithms, which um, infer things um, like you say principles from either processing a lot of data or learning as they go. This kind of reinforcement uh, type algorithm, that sort of thing. Yes, that's exactly right. So machine learning, neural nets, those would all be covered by my definition. But my definition does go wider than that. Those aren't the only technologies which are capable of producing the kinds of effects that I seek to describe. For example, in the future, whole brain emulation or other techniques may become more advanced in some ways than machine learning. 
But for present purposes, machine learning is coextensive with my definition. And so for at least the next three, four years, I think it's fair to say that machine learning is going to be covered by uh, my definition of artificial intelligence. Mm. Although in the future, um, my definition and my discussions would cover other technologies as and when they become viable. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're almost um, you're future facing in that way. You are saying that here are the stuff that we are uh, used to now and that we are interested in talking about and playing with and and possibly legislating. Um, but there's also you know I'm, you're open minded to the future of of this area and the technologies that might live within there. That's exactly right. Yeah, and. Um, um, I'm really interested, um, what kind of, uh, as a barrister, what uh, drove your interest in this area? My background is in international law, particularly the laws of warfare. And debates concerning killer robots, autonomous Mm. weapons have been alive in that area for some time. In fact, that's one of the only areas in law where people have been discussing the impact of AI for a prolonged period. So I was aware of those debates. The spark for the book came from when I was the judicial assistant or law clerk to Lord Mance, who is a justice of the Supreme Court. One of the things that one does as a judicial assistant is to help judges write their extracurricular speeches. Mm. Lord Mance was asked to give a speech on the future of law in around about the end of 2015. And between the two of us, we decided to write the speech about law and artificial intelligence. It was in researching that that speech that it occurred to me that there was a real gap between the increasing importance of artificial intelligence following the advent of the second AI spring from around about 2010 onwards and the lack of analysis from a legal or ethical perspective of the new problems and challenges that this technology may bring. And in that way you were looking at it and and I imagine a lot has changed since that speech, um, you know, four and a bit years ago. Um, But what what kinds of things were you thinking about when you were uh, first discovering or really interested in that area? Uh, In in a sense, a fair amount has changed, but also um, to, to a degree things haven't. So the key novelty of the technology, as I see it, that is the ability of a system to take decisions independently of human choices, of of human pre-programming, that has stayed as a constant throughout. Now, there have been some very interesting experiments and proofs and papers published since showing uh, the capabilities of AI systems, things like the advent of generative adversarial nets, Mm -hmm. uh, the recent OpenAI development of the GP2 AI program, um, those sorts of things have been examples of the novelty of, uh, of this type of um, technology. But uh, in a sense, the basics were all there when I started my research in around about the end of, of 2015. And I think the key legal problems and ethical issues that arise from this technology are the same and by and large are still unsolved. We're still as a society uh, as humanity as a whole on a journey towards trying to solve those things yeah and and you mentioned the um the open ai um algorithm gpt2 
Um, I don't think we've actually talked about this on the podcast yet because it's actually really current. Um, so I was wondering if you had uh, any th- thoughts or um, ideas about what's happening at the moment there. Well, the technology um, itself, just to, 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 to um, before, I get, before I get into the, the challenges, I'll just mm-hmm. give a summary of, yep. of the technology as I understand it. Now, it's a proprietary technology that OpenAI have explicitly not released because of the um, potential for misuse of such technology. What the um, program is able to do is to read a piece of text or a number of pieces of text and then to generate further text on the basis of the original writing. So they might take a book by an author and then the program is able to generate entirely new works in the style of that author, Mm -hmm. which are very difficult to distinguish from um, that which the author has originally written. So the point is that this could be used for generating things such as fake news and and, and indeed doing so in a um, way which is very difficult to distinguish from from real news or at least news which is is uh, generated by a legitimate source based mm-hmm. on facts in the world. So, so that's what the technology can do. I, I think that this raises certain ethical questions, um, which are not unique to this particular program, but, mm-hmm. but in fact apply to all types of AI, albeit that they are exemplified in this program because of its power. The, the two big problems are these. Firstly, how should AI take difficult decisions? Are there any parameters that should be applied to AI when it makes its choices? So applying this to the um, GPT-2, mm-hmm. the, the question might, might, might be, should there be any constraints on the wording it's allowed to generate? Do these need to be based in objective facts, for example? Should there be any constraint, can there be any constraint requiring it not to generate content that doesn't have a factual basis in the real world? Um, so that, that's the, the, the first question. How, how should it take these choices? How mm. should it operate? The second question is, are there certain operations, are there certain choices which AI should never be allowed to take? Should there be protected functions? Should there be protected industries where AI shouldn't be allowed to operate whatsoever or perhaps should only operate with a human in the loop? So one might say, for example, and I don't I don't necessarily take this position myself, mm-hmm. that journalism should be a profession, should be a trade, which uh, is banned for AI to operate in. We should, we should that we should never have uh, an AI system generating news stories that might affect people's views, that might change their actions because of its potential for being misused or for malfunctioning in in some way. Now, of course, lots of people would say that this is completely unnecessary and very extreme and human journalists get things wrong and mislead people as well. But, sure. um, but, 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 but as a general point, both of these ethical questions could be applied to this type of new technology, as indeed they could be applied to any use of AI. It's There's just such a lot to get into. Um, and I really, my mind was going wild whilst you were talking about the, the, that particular issue uh, with lots of questions. Um, so um, for me, I think it's really difficult because it's, 
it can be seen as sort of a magical creative tool. So like we were saying before, um, in this specific instance, we could feed um, the algorithm the complete works of Shakespeare and it, we could tell it to write you know, something of a certain length and it would produce possibly some new work uh, in the style of Shakespeare. And in, in what you've been saying, um, in my mind, that's very, very different and, and less misleading than obviously applying it to some sort of uh, news forum and producing things uh, which are misleading uh, or used for pro- propaganda purposes. So do you think that, I mean, in my mind, it's a difficult problem to solve because it's almost the domain in which it's used rather than the algorithm itself? I, I think it's absolutely right to deal with things, as you suggest, on a domain-by-domain basis, um, albeit that um, it's likely to be helpful to have some overarching rules which apply to um, AI systems regardless Mm. of what domain they're used in. There's a big debate in the regulation of artificial intelligence whether we should just have sector-by-sector rules, so one set of rules for autonomous vehicles, one set of rules for, let's say, drones, another set of rules for medical AI, and so on and so forth, or whether we also need some kind of coordinating high-level principles which apply uh, across all of these. My, my view tends towards the latter, Uh, I don't think that we need to get rid of sector-by-sector regulation because, of course, as we have in the non-AI world, there are different nuances, different interests that we want to be promoting and protecting uh, across different sectors. That said, with artificial intelligence, there are two things which I think make it important to have um, some overarching principles that cut across all sectors. Mm -hmm. The first is that we are shifting from narrow AI to more general AI in some instances. That is to say, we're moving from AI systems which can achieve just one small limited task to AI systems which are able to achieve multiple tasks, and yet yet it's the same system achieving these. So to give an example, IBM's Watson started off playing the US uh, knowledge game Jeopardy, but it's now used or aspects of that program are now used across many different fields from medicine to concierge systems for hotels to thinking of recipes for chefs. So we have situations in which the same AI system is being used in multiple different fields and uh, it, it would be inefficient to have different rules for each instance of that AI. And I think it would um, negatively affect innovation if people who are designing AI systems needed to work around multiple different sets of rules when they're designing one central piece of technology which is going to be used in multiple areas. The second issue is that if you have multiple different sets of rules and regulations, you get what's called edge problems. That's where people don't know what set of rules applies. And these can cause huge costs for businesses and developers of AI in terms of working out regulatory compliance with different systems and also lead to huge fees for lawyers, people like me, in terms of Hmm. advising them. So I might be talking myself out of a job here in due course. But ultimately, my interest is in 
promoting a, a stable regulatory environment for technology and society to flourish on the basis of the use of AI. Um, and so having many, many different potentially contradictory sets of rules for essentially the same technology, I think is the wrong way of going about that. Yes. So we should have some sort of overarching general principles or, or ruling and then maybe implement some sector by sector but you're saying that we shouldn't be too heavy-handed with that implementation otherwise you're maybe constraining the possibility space for for innovating in 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 those sectors yes that's that, that's a very fair summary of the way that i would look at it good great um so if if you're sitting outside of this regulatory framework so maybe bad actors something like that um would there be some sort of have you been thinking about also the post legislation um sort of area so if something went wrong and and maybe you had to come down with the force of the law how would how would that work well well, there are always bad actors in any system just because you have a law prohibiting murder doesn't mean that no murders are going to take place What one does need to have is a system of of enforcing those laws, both ex post facto, that's to say, Mm -hmm. after a crime has been committed, but also to have a system for encouraging compliance with those laws so that the crimes aren't committed in the first place. So there are multiple different ways of achieving this, and one needs to set up systems in order to promote and encourage lawful behavior as well as in the last resort having punishments and uh, penalties for those who who break the laws but generally Mm. speaking legal systems work through their symbolic and signaling function in, in encouraging the vast majority of people not to break the law in the first place rather than simply allowing people to break the law and then punishing them afterwards. Mm-hmm. If, if that was the only way yep. that legal systems worked, then they would collapse pretty quickly. So, so, so I'll give some examples of the way that this could be done with regards to artificial intelligence. One of my proposals that I outline in the book is that the profession of creating and adapting and operating AI systems ought to be professionalised. There should be professional standards requiring certain minimum safety and ethics training and indeed ongoing versions of that that safety and ethics training in order to ensure that people who are operating in this environment, who are wielding potentially very significant power, as we've just discussed with some of the more modern algorithms, that they understand the consequences of their actions. So just in the same way that architects are regulated because they build buildings that can have a huge effect on people if if there's an issue in the same way that lawyers are regulated doctors are regulated airline pilots are regulated i suggest that we should have a similar thing for people who are engaged in programming ai Um, so that would be one um, way in which standards could be upheld they might be upheld by a professional organization they might be backed by the legal system We might also have a way of certifying AI programs, of giving them the equivalent of the kite mark or the CE mark with which various um, goods are marked in in Europe and elsewhere to show that they have been tested, to show that they are safe in various ways. 
Um, so those are ways of prophylactically encouraging compliance with certain minimum standards. These don't necessarily need to be legally binding, but there could be a, a market reason why people who are producing AI would want to have this standardization attached to their product, because otherwise the public and uh, other buyers may not wish to buy it if they if they haven't got this standardization attached. Mm -hmm. Of course, in the last resort, we do need to have um, some form of mechanism of, of, of enforcement. Um, and so having a system for auditing and checking AI software to ensure that it's functioning correctly, um, uh, safely, and um, isn't doing things like uh, operating in a biased fashion will be important. And then one needs to have penalties, whether these are fines, whether these are other forms of, of, of regulatory penalty, um, can be worked out in due course um, and may differ from situation to situation. Um, but there does need to be some way of uh, making it clear to people that they cannot contravene these requirements without there being some consequences. Very interesting. I think one of the things that sticks out for me is um, uh, I think the kite mark standardization idea, uh, are, as you've said, are used with efficiencies in other sectors and, and are very useful. I think um, for me, I, I don't know where the line is at the moment necessarily with who is a person who is uh, a data scientist maybe um, and who is a person who is just implementing um, you know an algorithm like you say from Watson or whatever um, are those people both kind of implemented um, implicated by this idea of maybe we should professionalize them or is it more to do with um, someone who's creating the algorithm from scratch and and training it and less so um the person who's maybe purchasing or, or using an algorithm which is being supplied either free of charge or or charged via some platform or um, library that's a really good question and, and you're quite right to identify that now many different types of people are operating and engaging with ai particularly with um, technologies like uh, AutoML, which cuts out a lot of the uh, more complex steps that one might otherwise have to undertake as a specialist and mm. allows people with uh, less training to operate um, powerful AI systems. In, in my view, to some degree, all of these people who are at least on a regular basis engaging with artificial intelligence and operating it in some form mm. ought to a degree of training. However, the degree of training need not be the same for each person. So the original architect of a system may need to have a greater degree of training and mm -hmm. a higher level of certification than somebody who is merely operating a licensed system, perhaps plugging in some data unique to their uh, their organization and, and, and um, taking whatever output is from that system, but not really interfering with any of its weights or mm the internal workings yep. of the system. So th th there can be different intensities. And, and indeed, we see these different intensities of regulation in other areas. So, for example, in financial regulation, uh, under the FCA's mm -hmm. certified persons regime, there are different levels of certification and different levels of training and authorizations that are required, depending on which function you are fulfilling. Um, and the, the more complex, the more important function that you are fulfilling under the 
uh, FCA's regime for people in the finance sector, um, you, you have to have a, a greater degree of training and scrutiny of what you're doing. So even in the um, even for the layperson, we sometimes require um, special training, special licensing. A good example is driver's licenses. Mm -hmm. These aren't a legal requirement that everybody in the country must have them, but if you wish to drive a car, then you must have a driver's license. Uh, so in the same way, uh, we, we might have a system whereby there are professionals who have a higher degree of training, but anybody who wishes to operate an AI system must have a certain license to, to do so. It doesn't need to be ex uh, hugely complicated. Um, just in the same way that uh, obtaining a driver's license is not hugely complicated, but what it does do is give a minimum level of standardization for people who are potentially using a very helpful but also a very harmful technology. Mm, yeah, very interesting. Um, I was going to ask you a little bit about your book, um, and I was also going to then lead on to maybe what kinds of legislation are um, around at the moment or, or uh, being talked about. So I was just wondering what was the kind of the driver and the um, the main argument behind the robot rules regulating artificial intelligence? As I see it, artificial intelligence is unique as a technology because we have never had a technology able to take its own choices, to make decisions independently of humans. This is what distinguishes AI under my definition from things like expert systems, where a choice can be made by a system, at least on its face, but ultimately that choice was actually determined by a human programmer. With AI systems under my definition, we have this novel, dynamic, unpredictable aspect and yet it's not random. Principles are being adhered to. So this, in my view, leads to three problems. Firstly, responsibility. Who is liable if AI causes harm? And also, who is the owner if AI creates something which is highly valuable, highly beneficial? For example, a new painting or a new Shakespeare play, as you uh, alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. At the moment, legal systems are all set up to regulate human choices and to reward human creativity. There isn't really any accommodation for non-human choices and non-human creativity. And it becomes increasingly hard the more independent AI systems become to tie their choices back to any choice taken by a human. So that's the first problem, responsibility. The second problem is rights. Should AI ever be given rights? That is to say, should it be treated, for example, like animals, where they have certain rights not to be harmed under our legal systems, where we recognize that they can feel pain? Alternatively, and perhaps as well, should it be treated like a company, a corporate person which can hold legal rights and responsibilities, but we don't necessarily believe that companies can feel uh, feel pain or, yeah. or be caused harm in the same way as biological entities. Um, the latter might be a reasonable response to the question of who is responsible if AI causes harm or who is the owner if AI creates something beneficial. You might say it should be the AI itself, uh, and so this would minimize uncertainty. You could then have an AI program 
much in the same way as a company being owned by humans or being owned by another company. So it doesn't mean that the AI would be making all of its choices on its own. But that is a, a, a legal question which we as societies will have to, to grapple with, to decide mm. whether on a pragmatic basis that is a good idea. The third issue raised by AI, which I've mentioned already, is the question of ethics. So how should AI take difficult decisions if we choose to delegate them to it? And secondly, are there any decisions that AI should never take? For example, autonomous weapons, life or death medical decisions, judicial decisions, and so on. So those are the three unique areas that I think AI gives rise to problems for in legal systems and ethical systems as they stand. My book aims to identify those problems and then propose some solutions. Great. So um, during the the pages of your book, you have some sort of um, resolution, I guess, to some of those three issues that you raised there. Are, are there any that um, really strike you that you want to share now with the, the listeners? Um, and then obviously they can go and dive into your book later on. The key thing, in my view, is not to start off by writing new rules for AI. We've seen this being the approach that's been taken in many instances of proposed new ethical codes for artificial intelligence. So we have, for example, the 23 Asilomar principles. Mm -hmm. Google has promulgated six principles for AI. Microsoft has its six principles for AI. And, And really, there's a profusion of these uh, sets of rules or commands for artificial intelligence, which in many ways resemble updates to the famous Asimov's uh, three rules of robotics Mm -hmm. uh, from from the 1940s originally. Um, This is the wrong way of, of, of going about it. Rather than jumping straight to writing the rules, what we need to do is to design the institutions to build the systems capable of developing new rules which firstly work and secondly have democratic legitimacy where where that is appropriate. Unless we do that we're likely to have a system of rules which may or may not function well but ultimately if they lack democratic legitimacy, if they lack political legitimacy then they're likely to be rejected by the people to whom they apply. So what my book aims to do is to provide techniques for creating that political legitimacy, for building a regulator from the bottom up, for providing techniques that regulators can take from other new technologies and apply those to artificial intelligence. That's really interesting. So you're saying that the uh, the work that some of these companies are doing to put out these um, frameworks or uh, principles or whatever they like to call them um, is somewhat falling flat because you think there should be this third party democratically run institution that is able to uh, more more properly uh, generalize some rules that then can be applied to these organizations, not the other way around. That's absolutely right. I am very sceptical of a model which only relies on industry self-regulation. In the 1950s, the tobacco industry in the US, just when there started to be stories about health problems potentially being created by tobacco, Hmm. put together an industry-wide body which purported to be looking after the best interests of the public. They 
used this body to um, avoid regulation by governments. The, the body included many prominent doctors and uh, other experts. And essentially what the tobacco industry did very successfully was to say to governments, don't worry about protecting the public. We're looking after the public and we, we understand all these issues. So you don't need to do anything. And subsequent studies have shown that millions of people died as a result of the industry taking the lead on regulation and government stepping back. Now, I'm not suggesting by any means that big tech companies are as bad as the tobacco industry or that they are operating purely cynically. But that said, just as big tech, uh, just just as big tobacco companies have shareholders whose value and uh, whose uh, whose profits they are legally required to uh, maintain and, and increase, the same applies to tech companies. Their legal duties are not necessarily to serve the public; they are to serve their shareholders, at, at, at least. Um, in, in line with what the laws say. And so there is a, a, a mismatch. There's moral hazard involved in delegating these big ethical decisions to, to tech companies because ultimately they are not required to uphold the public's best interest. Um, so that, that's the first problem with, mm. with, with tech company regulation. Another problem is that there's no enforceability. So, so there's no there's no police force. There's no one saying to Google, well, you've broken this or that rule that you've set for yourself. Yeah. So there's no enforcement. Another problem is that if there are multiple systems of individual rules for individual companies, you don't have any certainty as to what rules are, are, are going to be applied in any given circumstance. It would be no good if an autonomous vehicle from Uber hit you and you had one set of rights and responsibilities, but if an autonomous, autonomous vehicle from Tesla hit you, you had a completely different set of rights and responsibilities. That kind of uh, fragmentation uh, is highly problematic for legal systems and, and ultimately for societies to be run efficiently. Um, so if you take that to its logical conclusion, let's say, would you propose some sort of UN for artificial intelligence? I think ideally one would want to have regulation on an international level. Algorithms are, of course, not bound by particular um, physical geographical boundaries in the same way that certain uh, other technologies are. Um and uh, more importantly, in order to promote free trade and to encourage consumer choice and innovation across borders, it would be very helpful if we had a set of uh, rules, a set of principles which applied regardless of, of where one, uh, one was in the world. This would be helpful for consumers to, to know that they ha there are certain standards which have to be upheld regardless and also helpful for businesses which will, will want to sell into different areas. And we have a real opportunity at the moment because currently there are very few binding laws on AI around the world. It's not like other areas like tax where countries have very established and very different systems which are really, really difficult to coordinate and to consolidate together. At the moment, we have a blank slate. And so there is a chance, there is an opportunity for creating internationally binding rules. And we do see some moves in that direction at the moment. Great. Um, so I guess um, 
let's carry that through. Um, within the conversations that you're having at, um, with legislators, is it it's something that they are moving on at the moment? Is it are we going to see some um, this type of legislation coming in, you know, um, in the near or, or medium future? Indeed, and some legislation is already in place. One of the only non-Brexit-related pieces of legislation in the UK passed last year was the Automated and Electric Vehicles Act 2018, which sets a liability regime for self-driving cars. This provides that if the car is insured, then the insurer will have to pay out if the car crashes and causes harm when in self-driving mode. Um, So that's one example of a law which has already been passed. I went to a seminar by the person who wrote that law, and she said that the reason why the UK was so keen to pass it was in order to beat Germany to doing so. Mm. And uh, the the reason why the, the government wanted to do that was to encourage car companies to establish themselves or to establish their autonomous vehicle research and development in the UK. Um, So it's often thought that there is a tension between regulation and innovation and that regulation um, is harmful to innovation. But actually, if regulation is done well, if it is done effectively, then it can be extremely helpful to innovation. It Mm. can provide a stable regulatory environment to encourage entrepreneurs. And that's very much what the UK has attempted to do with the Automated and Electric Vehicles Act. As far as I'm aware, it's the only piece of legislation of its type in the world at the moment. But I'm sure in the coming years, we're going to see many more similar types of uh, legislation uh, intended to uh, promote the development of, of AI, but also to um, uh, protect consumers and to promote public trust in the technology. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I like the idea that you posed or, or that you uh, exampled there of, of legislation being a proactive force for market um, growth, really. Also, coming back to that example, it is a presumption there that there are obviously insurers there who are at the coalface uh, looking to insure these types of um, of technologies as well um, to make that all happen yes that's right so the um the the system promoted in the automated and electric vehicles act does require does rely on the presence of insurers able and willing to insure these vehicles and in fact it actually puts a further onus on, on insurers within the act to uh, suggest certain critical updates that need to be made to the technology in order that their insurance coverage will be maintained. So what I think we're likely to see going forward, particularly in, in autonomous vehicles, mm. is insurers taking a far more proactive role in working out what the potential parameters of the technology are, what the dangers of the technology are and um, really being very involved in um, the developments and use of technology in a way which they haven't been necessarily in mm-hmm. in other areas where uh, where insurance is required and mandated now vehicles is is one area where it's quite easy to have an insurance based regime because there is already compulsory insurance for vehicles in the UK you can't mm. drive a car on the roads unless you have insurance 
there are many areas in which AI can and is now operating where we don't have compulsory insurance. So there may need to be some more fundamental reforms to uh, legal systems in order to have an insurance-based regime. Or we may, de we may decide that insurance is not the appropriate way of dealing with AI in other areas, uh, and that in fact we need other types of solutions to the question of responsibility for harm. Uh, that's super interesting. Um, I was just going to go uh, back uh, quickly, back to um, the book, and I was fascinated that you tackled this idea of um, the different definitions of AI quite early on in the book uh, with narrow, general, and super intelligence um, up there. I was wondering how important it was to make those definitions um, and how those eke into how the law is thinking about AI because obviously um, in my mind super intelligence is one of those ideas which may play out but it's very hard to see um, what technology innovation will occur to 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 make that the case and at what point that that will happen um, and what kind of um, outcomes that might provide as well. The US Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart once said of pornography I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And the question is, is that approach good enough for artificial intelligence? I don't think so. And this is why I spend a lot of the first chapter talking about different definitions for AI. A lot of the disagreements, particularly in the uh, press, which come up about whether AI is unique whether AI should be regulated, how it should be regulated, in fact arise not from disagreements over the principles of regulation, but rather over the definition of artificial intelligence. Often people who are talking about artificial intelligence don't start by defining what they are talking about. And as a result, people often talk across purposes. So to have any kind of clarity to a discussion on artificial intelligence, in my view, it's absolutely key to start off with a definition, which is what, why I do so in my book, the definition focused on choice making and autonomy for AI systems. Now, as to the question of general intelligence, narrow intelligence and super intelligence, in my view, the problems legally and ethically for AI arise even at the level of narrow artificial intelligence. We still have this question of who is responsible, how should a choice be made when it's not being made by a human, even if it's only in a very limited area like image recognition or uh, a, a suggestion engine of, of some kind. Mm. So that's my take on narrow and general AI. I do think that the more general that AI becomes, um, these problems are likely to be exacerbated. But the key point is that they apply even, even at the narrowest level. As to superintelligence, like you, I'm um, uh, uh, somewhat cautious about um, uh, when that, uh, and indeed if that, is uh, ever going to arise and what form it may take. What I would say is that a lot of the public debate has been taken up with these very dystopic predictions of superintelligent AI taking over the world and enslaving humanity and, uh, and all these types of, of, of things that Elon Musk talks about. 
Now, these may well be real issues, but they're somewhat of a distraction from the short and medium term issues, which my book seeks to deal with. That is to say, how should we live alongside artificial intelligence? That said, if and when um, any kind of superintelligence is developed, I think we would have a much better chance of addressing the problems that it may cause if we act now, if we act at an early stage to set regulations to shape the way that the technology develops in the future, rather than simply waiting until 50 years time and then trying to regulate. Mm, Yeah, and I guess if you have this body who's making these, um, you know, ideas, principles, available and um, producing legislation then I guess you're in a good footing already to progress into that future with more work uh, more things which will obviously be toe-to-toe with the technology developments yes that's exactly right Um, so we're getting somewhat towards the end of the podcast now so um, the last question I always ask um, is what is really exciting and in this technology at the moment and what things kind of scare you about the future with AI? For me, the exciting things include the novel technologies like generative adversarial nets capable of uh, achieving very exciting results, the novel uses of technology, the applications that it can now be applied to, for example, in medicine, uh, in many other areas, um, not just replicating human efforts, but improving upon human efforts. The danger for me is a lack of regulation, a lack of certainty as to all of the issues that AI is giving rise to. Now, there isn't a cliff edge over which we will fall if if we do nothing. We could simply try to apply existing laws and existing principles to artificial intelligence. But this risks two things. Firstly, a growing fragmentation, a growing confusion in the law as different rules and different principles are developed on an ad hoc basis without thinking about how they t- tie into the technology being developed. The other danger is that there is, at some point, a major disaster, a major problem involving AI, and this then leads to a public backlash to knee-jerk reactions from the press and from politicians, which could cause far greater damage to the industry and ultimately harm society by preventing innovation. So the solution to both of these things is to start to develop regulations, to start to build institutions now. So thanks very much, uh, Jacob, for joining us on the podcast. Um, Really fascinating. Uh, If people want to uh, read your book, find you, contact you, how can they do that? The book's available on Amazon and various other websites. It's published by Palgrave Macmillan, so you can get it from their website. I tweet at at Robot Rules, and I also have a website, www.robot-rules.com. Um, so you can find more information about me um, there and on my Twitter feed. Great. Thanks very much for joining us, Jacob. Thank you very much for having me. 
Thanks again for Jacob to come on the podcast. It was really great to hear from another um, lawyer. It's been about two years now since we had Lucy McCormick on the program, so great to see how things have shaken up a little bit. I think the conversation with uh, a, a democratic body in the industry is a really interesting one, and one kind of to be shaken out yet. Of course, this sort of subject is somewhat international, so whatever we do here, I think in the UK, um, really forging ahead to try and make AI ethics um, their big thing, hopefully will be taken up by the international community as well, and that's, I hope, uh, or I guess is the hope behind that um, whole endeavour. If you'd like to hear more of my thoughts, you go to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics, and thanks very much for listening. Bye.